This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. If you're going to be in here, let's go to Philippians chapter 4. Open in your Bible to Philippians chapter 4. As you're finding that in the New Testament, one of Paul's letters, I will say that uh, today we are bringing our series on joy to a close. And, And as we bring it to a close, I mean, I could just keep going and going and going on the theme of joy. Because there's so much to develop, there's so much deeper we can go in our joy. Yet at the same time, I, I have no problem bringing the series to an end this morning because what I see in the scriptures is that if we have faith in Christ, we will keep growing in joy despite doing a sermon series on it, despite uh, turning our attention back to the Gospel of John, which we'll do next week. We will in Christ keep growing in joy. And so I have to tell you, if you've enjoyed this series, if you've enjoyed what, what um what we've been able to learn from God's word about the uniqueness of Christian joy, don't worry, it doesn't stop. We won't stop talking about Christian joy. And I think it's fitting that we finish with, with what is probably the most well-known joy passage or joy admonition. You could call it a joy call in the Bible together this morning. Because it's, these verses are so important, they're so illustrative uh, I want to do something maybe slightly different than I often do, which is I, I merely want to read this, study it in a way that I think we, will help us to draw out as much as we can, and then I'll just put a few extra comments on the end. So kind of fair warning, I am not going to do this with a strong sense of outline, kind of moving from big point to big point to big, big point because this is so important and because these verses are, are the key biblical passage to rejoicing in the Lord. Mostly this is going to resemble more of a Bible study where we will kind of work it together and then I will make some comments along the way. I want to make sure in doing that that we have every precious word out of this. So that's what we do this morning. So first, let's read it. Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 4. We just do three verses together this morning. Philippians 4, 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Such helpful verses. So let's just start with some of the questions that come to mind as we read these verses. One, Who is Paul telling to rejoice? Because that will inform the rest of what we do. And second, what is the kind of joy that Paul has in mind? I think we can ask both of those questions and we can answer both of them simply here. Who is he telling to rejoice? Second, what does the kind of joy that Paul has in mind look like? So he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Now that rejoice, you don't get this in English, but you get it in the original language, which is Greek. That word rejoice is plural. What Paul has just, and that that matters because what Paul has just said prior to this 
in verse 3 of Philippians 4 is that he wants an unnamed true companion in the ministry to help two people who have been having a disagreement in the church. And so he wrote, he wrote there, you, singular, also true companion, just one. Here are the instructions. Help these two women who are having a disagreement in the church. So now, when we see that he's switching to the plural, that's a clue for all of us that he's moving on from that particular situation and his instructions there. And this is something now with wider application. So this isn't just two people rejoice. This is everybody rejoice. He's writing to Philippi. He's writing this, now that we have this letter in the Bible, it's meant to be read by the whole world. And so this is for us all. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice is for Christians. And then all of you can rejoice in the Lord what he says is always. And it's the always here that is so operative. It actually tells us about the nature of, of Paul's joy and the joy that he wants all Christians to know. And that happens when you say rejoice in the Lord always because it removes any ambiguity or or circumstantiality. If always, just think about it this way, if always wasn't there, you could say, well, he means have joy when there's something to have joy about. But when there isn't, You don't need to do any rejoicing. But because the always is there, we don't have any of those outs. Always means always in all circumstances. There there is a particular kind of joy, and this is what we've been discovering for these last four weeks. There is a particular kind of joy, a Christian joy, uniquely Christian that's going to look very peculiar to anybody who doesn't know the living Jesus. People will look around and they will say, have joy always. How can you possibly be expected to rejoice all the time? You know, they'll say, have you seen the world? They'll they'll ask individually, do you know what has happened in my life? Now, either you know people, many people, or you'll be accused of being insensitive and out of touch because people would say, if you really knew people, if you really knew me, if you really knew my story, you would know that people have problems, that I have problems, and you would know that there's illness in the world, and there's injustice in the world, and you would know that people everywhere are suffering. So you can't tell people to rejoice all the time. The world and life is hard. Maybe you could tell people to hold up. Maybe you could tell them to bear up. But you can't tell them to have joy always. That's unrealistic. That's out of touch. People who don't know Christ are going to say that. Because without Christ, that's your reality. That's the world you live in. So you can't have joy all the time. There's too many things that are difficult. But here's what I want us to help us see from these verses. It's actually through knowing Jesus and worshiping him 
that we can become more compassionate friends of the suffering and we can become truly joy-filled people even in the midst of our own pain. So I think instead of saying, how can you possibly tell everybody to rejoice all the time? If we see what Paul is doing here, if we see what it means to know Christ, we can actually become more compassionate and at this, toward the suffering, toward, the, toward injustice. And at the same time, we can be more joy-filled people, even in the midst of our own pain. Knowing Jesus unlocks both of those things to us. You will become more compassionate and more toward the suffering and more joy-filled when you know Christ. It's only possible through trusting in him. So this is why Paul doesn't, doesn't just say rejoice always. Look at, look at more, there are more words here. And this is the key to how, how do we become more compassionate? How do we become more joyful? Paul isn't just saying rejoice always, no matter what rejoice. There is some instructive language in here that again unlocks this whole thing for us. He actually says rejoice and then he puts three words in there in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always. So this isn't blind, aimless, directionless rejoicing that has no bearing in the world. Paul is not suggesting that we rejoice without any indication of what rejoicing is or whether we're doing it rightly. So think about this picture. Uh, You're dropped in the middle of a forest that you've never been to before, and you're told if you can make it out of the forest to in a certain way, to a certain place, there is a grand prize that awaits you. But you have nothing to guide you, and you don't know anything about how far away it is, for instance. That's virtually hopeless. You have 360 degrees in which you might go, and you don't know how long it's going to take you to get there. But just imagine now that you're given one simple item and one simple piece of information. The great prize, you're told, is due west, and it's 30 miles away. That's all you're told. Does that not change everything about your hope in, in, in getting, winning, achieving this prize? It's still going to be a challenge. Now, here's where this goes. It's still going to be a challenge. There are going to be things that threaten you. You're in the woods, in the forest. You're going to need shelter. You're going to need to find food, all of that. But you've got a compass, and with that, you can find true north, so you can orient yourself west. You can regularly check to make sure you're on course. And then, you know, you can figure, however fast you can walk, I would think, I I can probably cover, if it's 30 miles away, I can probably cover 8 to 10 miles a day, so I've got about three and a half, four days in that direction to go. The difference between Paul just saying, rejoice always, just do it, and rejoice in the Lord always, how you do it, where you're doing it, the direction of your rejoicing is like being handed that compass. You don't even need a full map. You just need a tool that shows you where one direction is. So we're not wandering around here wondering 
am I rejoicing the right way? Am I rejoicing in the right things? Do I have the proper amount of rejoicing? Or am I all messed up and directionless? By Paul simply saying rejoice in the Lord, we know if we're doing the right kind of rejoicing. And best of all, he gives us an object for our joy. We know that we're not rejoicing in, you can just fill in the blanks, we're not rejoicing in our circumstances. We're not rejoicing in even good things. Our family, that's a good thing, but families can struggle. Families can even be taken away. We're not rejoicing in the provisions we have and the things we have and the places we live. We're not rejoicing even in the time that we have. The object of our joy is the Lord. And that makes all the difference to know that we are rejoicing in him. And if you go back and you read what else Paul is asking for in the Lord in this letter, you'll see how powerful and, and how much this orients him. So let me just, I'm just going to point out too, he does it a couple more times in the letter, but I'll point out too. At the beginning of chapter 3, he uses the same exact phrase. 3.1 says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write these things, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Now he says there it's safe for you. But the very next thing he says is watch out for people who will come and try to manipulate and distort the purity of your faith. And so he says, it's safe for you to rejoice in the Lord. It's safe for me to write that to you. Not because life isn't full of trials. Not because there won't be suffering. Not because everything will go smoothly for them. But it's safe for him to write rejoice in the Lord but because the one that they are rejoicing in is sovereign over what will come against them. You know, it said you, you only know two kinds of people. Somebody who's suffering right now or somebody who will be suffering soon. We know that when we're told to rejoice in the Lord, we're not just having joy for joy's sake. We're not aimlessly joyful. We're joyful in the one thing who is over and above everything that could come against us. God is bigger than the trials. He's the anchor in the, in the midst of the wind and the waves. God is truth against the lies. It says in the Bible that he knows the end from the beginning, which means that to him, our lives and every event of them are unknown. He knows every small detail God doesn't live your life along with you wondering how things are going to go. God stands over your life. From, for him, the end right now and the beginning of your life all look exactly the same. God isn't trapped in a continuum of time. And he promises to guide us safely through so we can rejoice in him because he's bigger than anything that could ever come against us. And the, then the other place where Paul uses the phrase, in the Lord is Philippians 1.14 that I want to point out. This is what it says there. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So here, it's not joy in the Lord, it's confidence in the Lord. He's saying that people have been growing more confident in the Lord 
But what is he saying their confidence has now come from? It's his imprisonment. He writes this from prison and he's saying, by my being in chains, people are growing in boldness in the Lord. It's actually actually emboldening them to preach the gospel without fear. And this is such a departure from the way that we think it would work. So we have to ask, well, what's happening here? And what's happening is Paul is in prison because instead of agreeing not to preach the gospel, he kept on preaching the gospel. He's actually had two chances to be released. Instead, he's said twice now, I want to stay imprisoned because it will help the good news of Jesus to advance into the heart of the Roman Empire. So he's in jail because he won't stop preaching the gospel. But instead of having the effect of people being afraid to preach the gospel, you know, for fear that they might end up in jail like him, it said, well, Paul's in jail for preaching the gospel. You know what we ought to do? We ought to preach the gospel all the more. So counterintuitive to everything that we think it will be. And so now the context isn't even just Paul in jail. It's Paul not not certain whether he would be soon released or whether he would soon be put to death. But then he now speaks and says something different. In Philippians 1.25, he says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress. And here's another phrase, joy in the faith. And I picked out this joy in the faith because it it sounds for Paul very similar to joy in the Lord. Joy in the faith, joy in the Lord. And I thought, "Ah, that's so similar. It can't just be a mistake. Paul Paul, Paul is always referencing back to what he said so that it has to be something particular. And I think it is. For Paul, I, I, I think joy in the faith really has almost the exact same meaning as joy in the Lord. And and I think that because for Paul, the Lord is again the object of our faith. Just like the Lord is the object of our joy, the Lord is the object of our faith. So we don't have faith in faith. We don't have faith in joy. We have faith in the Lord. And so Paul says, my life is being poured out. Maybe I get out of here. Maybe I get put to death. It actually doesn't matter to me. But what he says, his conclusion then, he says, I've convinced of this. I know that I'm probably going to remain here with you all because that will serve your progress and joy in the faith. And I think that verse shows us two great things. The first is that God is serious about our joy. And the second is that there is no assumption that we have a complete mature joy now. And that's such good news because it means we're meant to progress in joy. So if you feel like, I don't have joy in the Lord always. Am I a failure kind of a Christian? I I don't always rejoice in all my circumstances. Am I not a good believer? Is 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 God angry with me? No, this is great news. We're meant to progress in joy, which means we're meant to know, we're meant to learn and to grow in our joy. We're not supposed to be all fully formed in this. We're meant to grow. So how does the Lord grant us that progress? How, do, how does it come? 
The next verse back in chapter 4 tells us and answers that question. Verse 5 says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Joy in the Lord comes and grows from knowing that he's close. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the only way we're going to be able to rejoice in the Lord when hard things come is by knowing that God is real and he is not removed. A lie we're told and one we so easily believe is when we're suffering, when we've experienced struggle and hardship and loss, one of the accusations that we'll be told is it must be because we've angered God and he's moved away from us. It must be because of our deficient faith. Friends, nothing could be actually further from the truth. Psalm 34, 18 tells us and assures us the exact opposite is actually true. It says there that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. If you think, I'm brokenhearted, am I a spiritual failure is, is, is this hardship because of me? Have I done something that has angered the Lord? Have I done something that has, have I taken myself away from the Lord? No, no, no. Friend, in that case, I can tell you very certainly from God's word, it is actually then that the Lord is nearest to you. It is then that he is most present with you. It is actually then that he is in the process of saving you. He saves the crushed in spirit. So why is it reasonable to rejoice? Because the Lord's at hand. He's near. This phrase actually has two meanings. The first is what we've just said. He's near, he's, he's, he's close by. Another meaning of the Lord being at hand is that he's coming again soon. This was a huge part of the Apostle Paul's theology. He was ever expectant of the return of Christ. If you, if you don't know what the return of Christ is, before we move on, let me just tell you, because it, it helps you to understand what Paul's saying, what the second coming of Christ is. When Jesus came the first time, the world was captive under sin and death. And as one who was truly God and truly man, Jesus lived without sin so that when he died, and he died a real death, that's the, which is the punishment for sin, he was able to break the power of sin because his death was a death he didn't deserve. And because his death was unjust, death couldn't hold him, it couldn't claim him, and so he was resurrected again to life. And then what happened is he appeared to hundreds of people after his resurrection. It wasn't just one person, two person, a dozen people. Hundreds of people saw him alive again. And then he returned back to heaven. Again, that wasn't something mysterious. His disciples were with him and they watched him go up to heaven. And he told them that he would come back again someday in that same way. And so now we as his modern day disciples are waiting for him to return. He will return physically. He will return bodily. That's what he promised to do. So all of that means at some point, Jesus is coming to earth a second time. 
And some of the details are scarce, but we do know this. Only God the Father knows the exact time of that coming, but we're to live lives of faith, eagerly waiting for it and expecting the return of Christ as though it will happen at any moment. People have accused the Apostle Paul of living his life in such a way that calls that into question. Paul was always saying, the Lord is at hand, the Lord is coming soon. So people were saying, Paul didn't even know. He thought, and look how long, it's been over 1,900 years since the Lord has come. But let me, let me just ask you a question. Let me reverse that question and ask it like this. What's better to live with? A view that, that at any moment, like Paul had, Christ could be returning, and, and then maybe he doesn't? Or, to do what most of us are, are probably guilty, myself included, of doing, which is to say that we believe, we say we believe in the imminent return of Jesus, but in these 1,900 years, we've probably been numbed into living like he's really not coming back all that soon, functionally. We might say we're living that way, but do we? So what's better, to live like he is and maybe he doesn't, or to live like he isn't, like we often do, and then he does. It's better to live with constant expectancy. Why? Because then we're more spiritually alert. Here's another question. If you thought Jesus was coming back very soon, how would it change your worship? How would it change your relationships, your friendships? How would it change how you spend your time? Because of what we're talking about today, would it have an effect on your joy? Would you rejoice more to know that the Lord was coming soon? I think it would. And that's why I think Paul says rejoice, for the Lord is at hand. And there's one more thing I want us to see here. This word reasonableness, that's a fine translation. Uh, it, it fits with what Paul's saying, uh, which is that we can always be rejoicing because we have all kinds of reasons for despair. We have all kinds of reasons to be discouraged, to lose hope. We can, we can be laid down. We can be weighed down. But we can rejoice because the Lord is at hand. It's reasonable to have this kind of joy because God is near and because he's coming again. But, and this is something that I, I want us to see. So look in your Bible. Look at that word reasonableness in verse five. It's used five times. That, that Greek word is used five times in the New Testament. Once here, four other places. The other four places, it's translated very clearly and it should be as gentleness. So listen to, this is a, probably the best example. This is James 3.17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, same word, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So again, godly wisdom is peaceable, gentle, and open to reason. The word gentle, James 3.17, is the same word for reasonableness here in Philippians 4.5. but you know it should be gentle in James 3.17 because if it was reasonable, like it's 
uh, translated in 4, 5 of Philippians, this is what you'd get. The wisdom from God is, first of all, peaceable, reasonable, and open to reason. Well, that doesn't make any sense because you're basically saying the same thing twice in a row. Reasonableness and then open to reason. That's the same thing. It's clear that gentleness is the translation there. But what about when gentleness could be the translation in Philippians 4, 5, which it absolutely may be? I think you get a more rounded picture of what Paul is calling us to in the reason why he's giving up, the reason he's giving us for joy. Gentleness seems like it would come from peace. It seems like it would be open to reason in James 3.17. And given all that, what can we learn about reasonableness, our reasonableness, if it's a gentle reasonableness in Philippians 4.5? So what if the translation, it would just sound like this. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Here's the link. Gentle people should be known, or sorry, joyful people should be known as gentle people. How come? Because gentleness is the result of trusting that God is working. Harsh people, hard people, are often that way because they're afraid. They're afraid that they're on their own. They're afraid that something's going to turn out bad for them. And so they are trying to twist and bend life to their will. Gentle people know the Lord is working. So they're willing to trust him even if things don't turn out the way they want it to. It works the same way with joy. Knowing God is at work and that he's never delayed, that he's never defeated, that's the deep well of a Christian's joy. And from that well comes up joy because you know that he is for you and he's with you. About 20 years ago, I uh, took a group of middle school students that I was pastoring to a Christian camp in Colorado. And our job at the Christian camp was to clear uh, brush so that a trail could be made because in a couple of weeks they were bringing into that camp, which was very remote, uh, a big machine that was going to drill down and try to establish a well there. And the, the director of the camp was taking me around and he, he wanted our students to go around and pray with him at these spots that the engineers had identified as most likely to have water. And it was going to be very expensive. They were going to dr- need to drill down at least 40, 50 feet, at least, but probably more like 100 or 150 feet. That's a deep drill, especially through The Rocky Mountains are called the Rocky Mountains for a reason. It's rock. It's a deep well that they were going to have to drill. And he told me, this is going to be really expensive. We need to hit water. This is so remote. We want to have elementary school kids and middle school kids. You you can't ask elementary school kids to ration water for a week. They'll spill it during the first lunch. We can't bring water in here like we need to. We need water out here or we can't have a camp. So we've got to go and we've got to pray that we can drill down deep and we can have water come up out of this ground or it's project over for us. The water was essential to the camp. The well was essential to the camp because out of it would some come, come something crucial for what they needed to have people there. And that's how it is with the nearness and the work and the second coming of Christ for Christians. Without those things, you'll never have true joy much less be able to rejoice all the time. But if you know that God is close to you, you'll never have a truer joy 
in your life. And it'll be reasonable. Because what better reason could there be for joy than knowing that the God of everything is with you and for you? And it'll make you gentle because it'll help you to rest in his sovereignty. The rest of these verses say, put your anxieties on him. Your anxiety's not going to go away. But you'll have a place to bring it. The worst thing is to have a bunch of anxiety and to not have anything to do with it, but to just sit with it. That's hard. Anxiety's still tough. But how much better is it to have some place to bring your anxiety? And then this is how God teaches us to pray. First being thankful to him and then bringing your needs before him. How can we do that? Same thing as reasonableness. Same thing as gentleness in our rejoicing. We can rejoice in all things. We can be thankful in all things because the Lord's at hand. We can be sure our prayers are going to be answered because the Lord is close. So instead of worry, we can pray because we worry. Think about it this way. Worry presupposes that we're alone. Prayer and thankfulness remembers that God is close and he's returning soon. So as I close this joy series, let me just end with this just one hope. It's the same hope that that Paul says he believes that he's going to remain present in the world, in his body. Because it will be better for their progress and join the faith. Which we we already said is the same thing as their joy in the Lord. That's my hope from this series. My hope as we close. My hope is that we would see the grace of God and in him, in that grace, we would progress. I don't rejoice always now. I get angry and I get bitter. I get jealous. I'm not always thankful. I don't always rejoice. I bet you you don't either. But God knows that. And he doesn't condemn me for it. And the same thing is true of you. So my my hope in Christian joy is that we would take the gift of God's nearness in that we would grow through it in joy. And that we would have the effect of being a place to put our anxieties and it would teach us to pray and that we would have more more thanksgiving and, and ultimately that we would have a deeper faith in the Lord because of it. And I hope then in our joy and in, by faith, we would look for the coming of the Lord. And so I'll return to what I said one more time. If you feel like kind of a failure Christian, if you feel like you're not always a joyful Christian, if you go rejoice in the Lord always, I don't even rejoice in the Lord the majority of the time. Good news, friend. God knows that. He doesn't condemn you for it. He gives you his son, Jesus, and he tells you he's, he's already given him once, and he tells you he's coming back so that you can grow in joy. You can grow in joy. Trust him to do that. Let's pray together. God, may we be a joy people because you are the joyful one. One of the most remarkable aspects of your nature is that you are one God in three persons. 
So you have been eternally joyful in yourself as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for eternity, from eternity past, and you will be into eternity future. You are the God of joy. And so we can have joy because you are joy and you give joy. And where we feel like we fail to have it, we thank you for your mercy and grace. Forgive us for not always being thankful. Forgive us for when we've worried without placing our anxieties on you. Help us to know that when we are anxious, we have a great place to put that anxiety because you are close to us. God, may we know what it looks like to rejoice always one day in heaven. And until that time, may we progress in our joy here on earth. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.